familiar to me. I can remember learning about it in class on Sunday morning or reenacting it on a Wednesday night youth group. And while the story holds a lot of familiarity, when I read it today, it strikes me quite differently. I wonder more about the man who remains just the man in this story. I wonder about his story, his journey. I wonder if this man was married or if he had kids. I wonder why he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe it was a work trip. Maybe a vacation to see some old friends. Maybe he was relocating. I'm not sure, but I wonder. I think often when we read this story, it can act as a feel-good story. We sit here and hear about a man getting beaten and left for dead, and then the priest walks by, and then the Levite walks by, and they both see this man and dismiss him and keep walking. And while we wish the Levite or the priest would have stopped, we know that at the end of the story, the Good Samaritan sees this man, and he stops and he takes care of him despite all odds. And then we learn what a good neighbor looks like. And we don't really feel too sad or empathetic for the man because at the end we are pretty pleased because the one who is suffering is cared for and taken in. And how awesome is that? We need to be more like the good Samaritan who stops and notices. We need to be better neighbors. And I'll be honest, I feel a little uncomfortable with this ending because as I reflect on the context of our world today, it doesn't feel like we're getting to hear many endings like this. It doesn't feel like we're at the part of the story where the ones who are suffering are seen and cared for. Rather, it feels like there's a lot of longing and there's a lot of suffering. And it feels like there's a lot of room for restoration. What if instead of the Good Samaritan stopping and taking care of this man, the Samaritan also sees him and continues walking? What if this man doesn't get the care he needs for his wounds because he can't afford it? What if um, this man isn't able to go back to work for months because his body is in so much pain that he physically can't? And what if because he can't work, he isn't able to pay rent? And what if because he can't pay rent, he loses his home? Who would be a neighbor to him? As I reflect on the world we live in, I think especially as white privileged folk, we have often... More times than not, the room and space to choose where and when we want to engage and where we don't. Like the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan, there was room to disengage, to keep walking, to turn a blind eye. And like you and me, there is room to become disengaged, there is room for us to keep walking. On the contrary, there are many people in our world who do not have the option to turn a blind eye. For the man in this parable, there wasn't space for him to be disengaged. Whether he liked it or not, he was attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, beaten, and left for dead. It makes me think about the ice raids. Documented or not, there's an intense underlying fear that is present. For people in the Latina community, there is not a choice to disengage. Rather, there is pressure to engage and to take all the proper precautions. Because if you don't, your life or the lives around you will be completely uprooted. I think about my friend Sarah, who was visiting home the summer before going into her sophomore year of college when her family got a letter from Homeland Security. 
a letter informing them that her mother, Andrea, was on the list to be deported. I think about how much fear swelled up in them over the many unknowns in their future. Sarah ended up taking a semester off from college to help her family sort out lawyers and paperwork. Her family had to become engaged. They had to take all the proper precautions. If Andrea were to get taken, all the bills would have to be transferred to Sarah, a 21-year-old college student. If Andrea were to get taken, Sarah would have to go to court against her biological dad in order to gain full custody of her younger brother. If Andrea were to get taken, who would send money to help support her huge family in Mexico? If Andrea couldn't support her family in Mexico, how would her sick father afford medical care? If her father couldn't afford medical care and continued to get sicker, who would watch the grandkids while Andrea's six siblings worked all day? If Andrea were to get taken away, what does that mean for her three kids? As I was discerning what I was going to speak about this week, parts of Sarah's story kept popping up into my mind. She is one of the kindest souls I have ever met. She is intentional. She is empathetic. She is vulnerable. Despite abuse and neglect from her biological father when she was young, despite raising her brothers starting at age five when her mom went to work, she chooses to be engaged in her community. She is a great embodiment of what a good neighbor looks like. And while I felt so encouraged and uplifted by her, my heart also aches deeply for her with her. I think about Andrea, Sarah's mother, who 21 years ago loved her unborn child so much that she made the choice to leave everything she knew in Mexico to travel to an unknown country so that her child could have a better life with more opportunities. I think about Andrea who traveled six hours to the Mexico side of the border even after her water broke at eight months pregnant. I think about Andrea loving her child so deeply that she fought tirelessly for three years to cross the border to enter into America. What if if Sarah's story isn't too uncommon? What if she isn't the only child in this community to face sexual abuse? What if domestic abuse is a more prevalent problem in the immigrant community than we would like to admit? What if many young Latina boys and girls are having to bear the weight of their parents' choices? What if many people in the immigrant community live in this constant state of longing for something better and fear over the unknown? If I go back to the text, I noticed that as the Samaritan was walking along the road, he first saw the man. Being a good neighbor requires us to see, to notice. He continued by taking pity on him. Being a good neighbor requires empathy. It requires us to not just see the person, but to share in and hold their feelings as well. Lastly, the Good Samaritan went to him and cared for him until he was well. Being a good neighbor requires commitment. It doesn't mean showing up once. But being a good neighbor means you keep showing up. And when we look at the world we live in right now, we see a lot of suffering, we see a lot of longing. And I think this text is calling us to notice. 
to notice the marginalized, to notice the enormous amount of fear surrounding the immigrant community, to notice the brokenness in our criminal justice system, to notice those in the LGBTQIA community who have been wounded and traumatized by the church. We are then called to have empathy, to listen to the stories of people in marginalized groups that are hurting right now, to hear their stories and bear their pain with them. When we hold empathy for someone, I think it makes it a hell of a lot harder to become disengaged. Because when you take the time to listen and to hold empathy, you become more connected. And being connected helps us to keep showing up, despite the fear and discomfort that comes with it. As Sarah's story kept coming up in my mind to share today, I decided to formulate a text to send to her asking for permission to share. I think I spent at least an hour working on the text and the whole time was so anxious about it. Even though I'm good friends with her and was pretty sure she would be okay with it, with me sharing, I was so nervous about sending the text. I did not want to be the white person who says the wrong thing and I did not want to be the person to put myself in a position to say the wrong thing. I did not want to be... The white person who speaks about the marginalized just to get woke points. And I don't think my fear is uncommon. And I want to be honest about that. I think as white people, finding the boundary to be engaged can feel hard and scary. And my perception is that often we feel the choices are we aren't engaged enough and people are left voiceless or we're too engaged and people are still left voiceless because we've taken over. When is it appropriate for us to listen? When is it appropriate for us to speak up? I think as people who are seeking to grow and to learn more about how to be a better neighbor, interacting with those outside of our bubble, or really even those inside of our bubble, can feel scary. And I think our fear of what people will think about us, that we might say the wrong thing, or the possibility of feeling uncomfortable, often drives us to disengage rather than to engage. And I'm not sure what it looks like to overcome this, and I don't know what tools would be helpful to help us uh, be less scared. But I do think maybe it just takes a little bravery. Maybe it takes some humility saying, hey, I may not get this right, and I may say the wrong thing, but please call me out on it. I want to be better in the future. Maybe it just means showing up. Brene Brown says, the willingness to show up changes us. It makes us a little braver each time. When I think about the half-beaten man left for dead, I wonder what his story was. I wonder what he was feeling, how much fear resided in his body as he lay there on the side of the road. I wonder how the story would change for us if we knew more about him. Would we feel more sad for him, more empathetic? I also wonder how the story would change for the Levite or the priest. If only they knew his story, would that be enough to make them stop? I wonder what would happen if the ICE agents knew of Andrea's story. 
Would they show mercy on her? I now want to open up um, some room for some dialogue. Um, So I have some questions. So my first two are, how has emotionally engaging with someone changed your perception and how did it change you? So how has emotionally engaging with somebody changed your perception? How did it change you?
but to hear what it was like to have a peculiar mix of mental, emotional, physical issues and navigating the system and the bureaucracy and the letters that came to him that demanded this and that and the other he couldn't sort out and how it flipped in his paranoia and how for me it's like well you would just this 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 but to be with him and hear him and sort that man inside I went golly molly molly this is tough to be to have all those issues and there is aid but when he's running his fears his angers his overwhelm and then he would Anyway, and he would take his meds for a while that, or, or, or had him in his home. His world was so complicated. And I like to put brief order to, to chaos and we did a little bit, but wow. It changed me to see why it through his, from his side and all the he had a job. It was kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Kind of crazy. Thanks for sharing this. I think, first of all, we've really got to just recognize things because our oldest daughter has really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I think I have just gone through life not thinking about um, and maybe really good things. The other day I was at work and um, me and a colleague who is black were talking and I said, you know, my daughter's really opened my eyes to um, who's pulled over by the police. And she kind of looked at me like, where are you going with that? And so I was like, um, so can I walk through that with her? And so I, I, I said, I said, you know, I started really paying attention and realized a lot of black males are pulled over. And she kind of looked at me and she said, well, that happened to me and I said, and how, how did you feel? How did you feel and how did you respond? And she said, it terrified me. And she said, and when the policeman got up there, she said, I was just like shaking all over. And he said, um, you don't need to be afraid like that. And she said, I was like, I, I am afraid. I'm afraid like that. And she said, I can't even get my license out of my purse. And so we just kind of talked about that. We just kind of were in that together. And, and me asking her, how, you know, how, how do you feel when that happens? And what are you thinking? And it was just a conversation to have with someone else to get their perspective. And, and, and I looked at her and I said, I don't worry about that. Because I looked at her son and wife, and I don't worry about that. And I said, and I'm sorry that when you get pulled over, it's something you have to worry about. And before, I probably would have never given it much But it opened up a way to have a conversation with one of my colleagues that um, that I have a very good relationship with. And to see someone else's perspective, and I think that's the biggest thing, is when we can listen and hear someone else's perspective. Thanks for sharing. I am. Uh, this is happening. I mean, it's happened to me a lot. Uh, where you have certain opinions and you get to know someone, you realize, oh, my opinion was wrong. I'm so glad I met this person. And it kept happening over and over to the point where I was like, oh man, I'm never going to get it right. <laughs> I'm always going to have these wrong opinions. And I really think that that's, you know, I, 
it made me feel silly, like, how can I not, am I not a capable enough human to educate myself about someone else's perspective without having to have it shoved in my face all the time? Um, and then I just started to realize that, like, that's the way God created us to learn is from having other people's perspective shoved in our face all the time. Like, when he says iron sharpens iron, it's not the smartest man sharpens you and brings you up to their level. It's that someone else ex- else's experience sharpens you and teaches you something you didn't know. And so now, instead of, like, trying to figure out the right perspective or pouring energy into figuring out the right perspective, I try to pour energy into, I mean, and that's why we spend time at Alamo as a community or anything like that. We try to pour energy into putting ourselves around other people who can teach us other things and not worrying about the things specifically, but worrying about our interactions with people and our availability. Yeah. I, I think what, to be back, what you say there is a perspective that we are, if, if we figure out that we've done it ourselves, we can be also look at me, you know, and, and I can be a, a hero, you know. But if you show me your face like that, so it's like, oh, how stupid I am. You know? And if it does, cameras, I haven't thought about that. But I think having that vulnerability, having that vulnerability to say, oh, I didn't know. Because I've noticed that when it's brought to my attention, my natural response is is to get on the defense, you know, and to be like, oh, but I know about this, so like I knew about this, you know, or or whatever. But I think being able to be vulnerable in that position to say, I didn't know. Obviously, that is not my experience, and I'm so glad you told me. I'm getting better at that. But I, because I think we're also scared of not being in the know and scared of looking dumb or scared of looking, you know, like we've lived in this bubble, which we have. So it, it should be okay to admit it, but it is hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that vulnerable space of what you're saying, Sarah, is so important. Mm-hmm. I'd like to tell a story from my childhood. Um, when I was probably five or six years old, I was at my grandmother's house. She babysat me a lot. And an old black man came up into our yard and he wanted to know if he could do some yard work or something just to get enough money to get some food. He was hungry. And my grandmother, she said, well, you sit right down here on the porch and I will cook you lunch. And she went in and made him a hamburger and brought out a big glass of iced tea. And we sat there on the porch and he ate his meal. And then he went on his way. And my grandmother told me, always be kind to people like that because you never know when you're entertaining an angel. But my other grandmother was totally different. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Um, my next question um, is Do you find yourself in a privileged bubble? And in what ways are you willing to call yourself out? So do you find yourself in a privileged bubble? And in what ways are you willing to call yourself out? Um, 
don't all answer at one time. <laughs> we have to think of all the ways in that. Uh, you know, around. <laughs> um, and a couple of things happened, and I, I don't know about calling this out. Okay, I don't. I, again, I, I think uh, if it's getting slightly in the face, uh, that we're sometimes it needs to happen. But I remember thinking back about seven or eight years ago, I don't know, um, where I started thinking about my father, his pharmacist, and he was in World War II in the Korean War, and on the GI Bill, he was able to go to pharmacy school. Now, when I was in high school, our school was completely integrated in Overton, Texas, because it was the only school. Okay, so there was some other wet in the 70s. Uh, yeah, the integration had happened, and I mean, like, there was no way to have a white flight at all because it was counting 2,000 people. Um, and I, I was thinking about all of the guys and gals of color in my school. I remember riding a bus and stopping by a shotgun house that had about 10 students living there. People come. And just like I said, 10 years ago, five years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, it occurred to me. My the people, my classmates of color did not have the same opportunity to succeed as I had because their parents, even though they may have fought World War II, to get through the and technically they had the GI Bill. But they wouldn't have been allowed in half the colleges or most of the colleges in the South. They could have gone through pharmacy school, like my father. Um, they were discouraged to even apply for the China. So people my age were not able to go to college like I was able to go to college because their parents were as well off as my parents simply because of the color of their school. Terry found a directory of my father's from Victory Oklahoma. He was in what I said, World War II Korean War. This was all the service made from Victory Oklahoma. So she said, oh, well, look up that. So she turns to the back of the books because we're Willis's. And she doesn't see my dad anywhere. All she sees is a sea of black faces. And when it hit her that the reason my dad's picture wasn't in the back is because that's where the blacks were. It's in the back. They couldn't even be put in the same pages as the white shirts. I never seen my wife so disgusted. <laughs> you know, it was like, what is going on? Um, so, I mean, that answers the first question I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a privileged mobile. I've been all of my life. Uh, as far as confronting myself, I don't know. Thanks for sharing. Uh, we are in a constant privilege bubble of being able to choose what we see and what affects us. Thanks for sharing. One of the ways that I've been 
trying to counteract that is trying to listen to people who are not like me. And um, because I have chronic health issues and I'm very often like stuck in my house, it's hard to go. I know eventually I will have to go do this and put myself in spaces where I'm the only white person or um, or I'm the only straight person. But uh, I haven't got there yet. But one of the ways I do that is like I listen to podcasts by women of color. I listen to what they talk about. I read books of people of color. I read books about um, other people. So just educating myself as much as I can. Um, and then I still like get it wrong when I actually um, am in a group. Um, I still put my foot in my mouth. Um, and it goes back to that being vulnerable and like, well, we are going to put our... I was just listening to a podcast and uh, we're always afraid of saying like the wrong thing, especially if we're um, talking to people of color and <laughs> the person was like, well, they already know you're racist. So, I mean, because you're just, you live, that's the water we live in. Um, so what you say is not, it's only going to probably help you. <laughs> and even if you put your foot in it, you can just say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and I have put in my, I have put my foot in my mouth a lot recently. Um, uh, uh, here, I'll tell you the story of how I put my foot in my mouth recently. I was at a baby shower uh, with some uh, colleagues of mine um, that I teach with, and I was talking about how Henry goes to a school where it's a dual language, and, like, and there's so many Henrys. Uh, there's three Henrys in his class. One goes by the name Kike, which is short for Enrique, even though he's a blonde, blue-eyed boy. And I was like, oh, isn't that cute? This guy, this little boy named Kike. Well, one of my colleagues was like, you know that there are Spanish speakers that are white, right? Like, she said it to me like that, and I was like, um, yeah, I just haven't seen them. Or something like that. And I also realized, like, I made her feel bad for making me feel bad for something like I kind of should have known and because I shut up after that. And then she tried to engage me. And so even then, she's still trying to make me feel better. Which it's not even... Which yeah. is about something that was ignorance on my part that yeah. I didn't know. So um, it's okay to put your foot in your mouth. Um it's going to happen, but I think we have to, we have to do it. Critical learning process. Well, and it also makes me think, because the other day, the same person I was talking about earlier, she said to me, they all come in as Terry, because I, I'm like old enough to be all of their moms. Um, so they all come in as Terry. And she said, Miss Terry, do you know that me and Jocelyn hang on your every word when you talk to us? And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, I'm just thinking and type, oh no, do not do that to me. You know, because then it made me stop and think, what am I saying? What is coming out of my mouth? And do I need to make sure I'm taking a big step backwards when I'm conversing? Because why are they hanging on the word that I say? Which just freaks me out, you know. But it did make me stop and think, what what am I saying? And is, is it good things, you know? Um, so that kind of unnerved me a little bit and is making me think more about what I say. I think it's good for us to share stories like this, like where 
as a culture, we listen to things that we want to listen to, and so we, we aren't used to having to do that. And so that's been another part of the process, mm-hmm. checking why we're feeling, and not just reacting, which is what we're used to being able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially the consciously incompetent, because I've been thinking about very early on in my career as a school psychologist, I was sitting down to do a parent interview of a parent of a toddler who was very developmentally delayed. And I, you know, I was new, so I had my parent interview already, and I'm asking the questions that I thought I should be asking, but her child was not at that point yet. And I can tell both of us are getting more defeated because every question I'm asking, she's not experienced that yet with her child. And I realize that I am completely incompetent for this situation. And I'm supposed to be coming in as an expert, the one who is helping with your child, and I think I have no idea what I'm doing. And so eventually I just said, tell me about your child and learn from this mom who, that's her world, that's, she's so confident in what she's doing. And it was the, one of the biggest moments in my career knowing that you can go and study and be what you think is confident and have no. no. And so willing, the willingness to say, Tell me about your situation because I don't I don't know. And it was pretty humility humiliating for me, but also formative and healing for my relationship with this parent. He's saying, You're an expert in what you do. Tell me more. No. And forget all these other expectations that I was trying to push on you. No. Thanks. Um, so I asked Sarah to think about and share with me um, what a good neighbor has looked like in her life for her. Um, and so these are some thoughts that she shared with me. So in Sarah's life, a good neighbor looked like a Guatemalan lady who offered her home to their family and made them feel safe when she first when they first entered uh, the U.S. A good neighbor looked like a college-bound advisor who knew her and helped her pick out the perfect college. A good neighbor looked like um, a college financial aid advisor who did all of the paperwork for Sarah so she could take a semester off to be with her family in crisis. A good neighbor looked like a local community center who offered her a job when she took the semester off and opened their doors to her family. A good neighbor looked like a high school choir teacher who would drive her from audition to audition because her family wasn't always available. A good neighbor looked like a teacher from high school who would take Sarah and her siblings to the Perot Museum or to the movies or to restaurants so that Sarah could have a few hours to not be a big sister, to not be a mom, but to just be a kid. A good neighbor looked like a man named Job who simply just listened to Sarah's mom, Andrea, when she got the deportation notice and didn't know what to do. A good neighbor notices. A good neighbor doesn't have to do something big, 
but notices when a 16-year-old is the mom at home and needs an hour or two to just be a kid. A good neighbor listens well. Like the Guatemalan lady, or the college-bound advisor, or the financial aid advisor, or the high school choir teacher, or the man named Job, a good neighbor listens well. A good neighbor keeps showing up, even when it feels uncomfortable or scary. That is why this story and the gospel itself has so much power. We are called to selflessly love not only members of our own communities who look like us and believe like us, but also those whose society would have us believe or the other. Jesus' story was a parable for a particular time and a particular people, but its implications couldn't be more real today. Our neighbors are suffering and need someone to care. The time to pay attention has come. Please pray with me. Dear God, help us to pay attention to those around us. Help us to be better neighbors. Help us to be better listeners. Thank you for your mercy and your grace as we seek to be better neighbors. Lord, please be with those in El Paso and other people who are hurting and who are fearful right now. And we know that you are with them and that you are with us. Thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen.